0: Okay, praise the Lord. Welcome again to our Bible study series in the book of Acts. We are hoping to go through the entire 28 chapters of Acts in this series of studies. Uh, We've made it up to chapter 6, which is actually uh, part 5 of 12 parts that we'll be doing in this series. And as always, I want to remind you and anyone new listening that all of these studies are recorded. They're also broadcast on the internet and the audio recordings as well as notes are available in several different ways. Uh, You can access them through our website new-life-ministries.org You can also subscribe to the New Life Ministries podcast, that way you get each update, whether it's a recording or a new set of notes automatically sent to your smartphone or other device. You can also uh, join us live, either on the telephone, or you can log into to the internet at MixLR.com and follow the broadcast name, New Life Ministries. If you are following in the notes which I strongly recommend because we cover lots and lots of scriptures and rather than trying to look all of them up in your bible we try to put the main texts already into the notes so you can read right along without having to flip back and forth in your bibles sometimes we add new things spontaneously as we go along but the main heart of the message should already be in the notes to make it easier. Okay, we have come to page 77 in the notes and again this is part 5 entitled Choosing the Seven and in this part we've looked at some interesting developments that took place in the early church. We're not sure of the exact timeline but it seems that about 10 years may have passed since the day of Pentecost and the birth of the church. So we're, we're looking at some time since then that the church has been growing and also experiencing some growing pains. And we started this chapter off with the choosing of the seven deacons to meet a need that had arisen in the church uh, to help with the administration of food for the widows. And two of those seven that were chosen, we would normally refer to them as deacons because that's what they were and that's what they did, Um, very significant men of God, one of which we're now tracing further in this section. In the next part, we'll look at the other one. Uh, In the present study, we're looking at Stephen, first one listed there in the seven that were chosen, and next time around we'll be looking at another one of those deacons, Philip. Stephen has the distinction of being the first martyr in the early church, and we're about to find out exactly what happened to Stephen that led up to his being the first Christian that we know of that was put to death for his faith. And Just to recap a couple of other important things, we've been watching this build over a period of time, going all the way back to Acts 4, when there was this conflict between the religious Jewish establishment and the apostles and the Christians in the early Jerusalem church. Initially, there was jealousy, uh, a couple of arrests a few threats and warnings for them to stop talking about Jesus, stop preaching Christ in Jerusalem. Of course, they continued right along doing that. Uh, Then eventually, there were floggings, and by Acts 5, we can see it starting to reach a new level where they were furious against these apostles and actually wanted them put to death. So, that was a major uh, warning flag that at some point this jealousy, this animosity towards the way was going to boil over and they were actually going to give vent to their hatred and anger and start to kill these Christians. It gets much worse in the next chapter. But for now, we want to stay focused on Stephen and we saw that He was brought before the Sanhedrin, all of the high priest and his council and all these Jewish experts and leaders, and answering a number of trumped-up false charges and accusations against him that he was blaspheming God and blaspheming Moses and blaspheming the temple and all kinds of nonsense. And in a long, eloquent speech, he went through the whole history of Israel, showed his great knowledge and love for Israel, identifying himself repeatedly as one of them, uh, talking about our people and our fathers. And then it's only at the very end of his speech, the final few verses, that the whole tone changes from one of the history of Israel to a bold and scathing rebuke of all of these religious leaders. And it has often been said, if he had just left off those final few sentences, he would have been okay. He could have kept going about his business, preaching, and we, we learned that he was doing mighty signs and wonders. Many more people probably could have gotten healed and A lot more people could have been brought to the Lord, but God's ways are not like our ways, and God's thoughts are not like our thoughts, and that was not what God's way was going to be. God so deemed that at this point in time, the church was going to witness its first martyr. Not just a witness, a real martyr for the faith. And What really got Stephen in trouble picking it up again in Acts 7 the whole 7th chapter of Acts deals with his speech responding to these charges you have to work your way all the way down to verse 51 to see where it really, really goes south and that's where we pick it up. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but you have not obeyed it. Now let's stop there. We're not to the end yet. But as you can well imagine, uh, these words didn't go over very well. This again is the religious elite. These are the high priest and the the priests and the experts. And he turns to the whole bunch of them, and says, you're stiff-necked, you're uncircumcised, you're just like your fathers. And he's been building that case throughout his speech, showing that the history of Israel is a very sad history of them repeatedly being stiff-necked, rebellious, disobedient, not doing what the Lord was telling them to do. Now he brings it home and he says, you're just like that you always resist the Holy Spirit. That perhaps was the most devastating charge of all. Stiff-necked, of course, referring to the stubbornness, uh, they're unyielding, they're obstinate, they're rebellious. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, Now, they were all circumcised in the flesh. He's talking about a spiritual circumcision that would only be possible under the new covenant. You see, things that occurred in the old covenant were just types and shadows pointing toward realities that would come about through Jesus Christ. The old covenant circumcision was just a cutting away of the flesh. The new covenant circumcision, the real circumcision, takes place in the heart. It cuts away the calluses, the hardness, the stoniness of the heart, so that it's tender before God. And there's a circumcision of the ears that must take place. So many times in the New Testament we read, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. And even Jesus repeatedly thundered against this same religious group saying, you can't hear, you can't see, your eyes are blinded, your ears are closed, and you can't be saved. You can't be saved as long as your ears are plugged and your eyes are blinded. And this indictment against the Sanhedrin is very clear. You can't hear, you can't bend or yield, and finally, not just once in a while, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go back. How did the church begin on the day of Pentecost? It began with the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit that the Jewish prophet Joel had predicted many, many years earlier. Now, the church is enjoying this outpouring of the Spirit, moving of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit. The church has been growing by leaps and bounds, and the religious establishment has consistently been resisting that movement. Stephen hits the nail right on the head. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit and you're just like all of your fathers. See, that's been the problem for centuries. You're always resisting God, resisting the voice of God. Now, you're resisting the Holy Spirit and the fact that he's basically prophesying his own death. They're going to put him to death. And he's saying, you're no different than your forefathers who killed so many of the Jewish prophets that God sent to them. He says this, was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus Christ. And now... You have betrayed and murdered Him. Like Peter did several times in his preaching, Stephen also says, You betrayed and you murdered Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Prince of Life. You've always had this tendency, not only to resist and to reject the prophets that God sends to you, but very often you've put them to death. And these words are very similar to some of the rebukes that Jesus spoke against the Pharisees and religious hypocrites, some of whom are in this same council now. We talked about that in previous studies. The high priest and some of his cronies are the same ones that were involved in the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. And the indictment comes in Matthew 23 from verse 27 down to verse 35. It says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets, and decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So, you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of the sin of your forefathers, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers, some of them, like Stephen, you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So, while Jesus was on earth, he warned his disciples repeatedly, as they treat me, so they're going to treat you. The same hatred the same murder that they bring against me, you'll be facing one day. They are going to persecute you. They're going to bring you before the courts and the judges, and you're going to have to testify in court. All that is now being played out in the book of Acts. Next thing Stephen says is, in response to their accusation that he was blaspheming Moses and blaspheming the law, he turns it right back on them and says, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. Oh, wow. To tell these religious experts in the law of Moses that They don't even obey the law. Well, Jesus had told them that too. You tell everybody else to obey these laws, but none of you keep them. They're hypocrites. Let me read to you this portion in the Message Bible, kind of a loose modern translation. Acts 7, verses 51 to 53 again, from the Message translation. And you, the priest, the Sanhedrin, You continue so bullheaded, calluses on your hearts, flaps on your ears, deliberately ignoring the Holy Spirit, you're just like your ancestors. Was there ever a prophet who didn't get the same treatment? Your ancestors killed anyone who dared talk about the coming of the just one. And you've kept up the family tradition. Traitors and murderers, all of you! You had God's law handed to you by angels, gift wrapped, and you squandered it. My goodness! You can imagine by this point in time the the level of angst and anger and fury that is starting to build in the room. Nothing more needed to be said, and matter of fact, nothing more could be said. That was it. They had sought to put Stephen on trial, and instead, he has become the prosecutor, and the guilty defendants are the high priest, and all of these Jewish leaders. And it's not really Stephen, it's the Holy Spirit in Stephen that is speaking these words. And let me pause again and remind us, every time they faced persecution, rather than backing down, rather than caving into fear and the threats that the Jewish leaders were giving them, they did just the opposite. They gathered together, they prayed, and they asked the Lord to give them more boldness to stretch out his hand, to heal with signs and wonders and miracles. And you can see, each time the fury and the opposition escalates, so does their boldness. And one of the things that I pray happens to all of us as we move through this study in the book of Acts, it increases our confidence and our boldness as Christians. We don't need to be politically correct. We don't need to mince our words to try to please people. These men were not men-pleasers. And when they had something to say, they said it. And very often it cut like a sword, or as a saw, more literally. And they had to know the consequences of the way they were speaking. But they didn't back down they knew in whom they had believed, they had already received fair warning that you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be dragged before the courts, and some of you will be put to death for your faith in me. But they didn't back down. And this should give us real boldness when we see the way these early Christians stood firm for their faith in the face of opposition They didn't back down. Their their continual refrain was, we must obey God and not men. In other words, we must please God and not try to please people. Well, here comes the ending. Acts 7, verses 54 to 60. When they heard this... (laughs) without even reading any further, you can probably fill in the blanks. When they heard this, my God, what kind of a reaction. Whew! This was some kind of a speech. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at Him. That's something we haven't heard before. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I'm sure that last little bit is going to go over real well with these guys that are gnashing their teeth at him And here he is saying, hallelujah, I see the glory of God. I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This is wonderful. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing right there. Well, verse 37, at this, they couldn't handle it anymore. They just couldn't stand it. They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. I want you to notice the contrast between their behavior, their spirit, and Stephen's behavior, and Stephen's spirit. It's it's quite a contrast. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. This word, that's translated furious, we encountered in Acts 5, again, referring to these same people, the same Jewish leaders. And let me remind you the Greek word literally means to saw asunder, to exasperate, or cut to the heart. It's not the kind of a cutting to the heart that leads to repentance. These guys are just unhinged now. They're so angry. They, they feel like a, a chainsaw has been going through their hearts and it's just aggravating them and, and upsetting them so much that they just go off. They are completely out of control now. Their anger, their fury, their hatred is completely out of control. And again, Stephen could have modified these last few sentences of his speech and probably, maybe with a little flogging or a warning, been released as the apostles had been on previous occasions. But it's like he kept sticking the sword in. He kept sawing into their hearts without any backing down, with no hint of political correctness, fearlessly, boldly, delivering the message that the Holy Spirit gave him for these Jewish leaders. So, they're furious, they're just cut inside, and they're gnashing, gnashing, grinding their teeth now, literally, grinding their teeth. They're so angry at Stephen. And (laughs) one loose translation is, we're so mad we're going to have this guy for dinner. I mean, they were like wild animals now, like lions ready to rip their prey apart, just angry and gnashing their teeth, they, they can think of nothing now but killing this man. But notice the contrast. They're like wild beasts completely out of control, overtaken with their anger. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, first time we were introduced to Stephen, he was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, Last time we're going to see Stephen, he's still full of the Holy Spirit. What a way to start and end. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Not a hint of anger, no indication that Stephen is coming unhinged or trying to fight back or resist these characters in any way, shape, or form. It says he was full of the Spirit. He was just looking at Jesus, seeing the glory of God. What a contrast between the Jewish leaders and their complete discomposure as they are rejecting the Holy Spirit, rejecting Jesus, rejecting the Gospel, and Here's Stephen, we already read, he had a face that looked like an angel, full of the Holy Spirit, seeing Jesus, and praying for their forgiveness. Now I want to look more closely at this next statement. He saw Jesus. He saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus, and he's very specific. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Some people have said uh, that that's wrong. That's that's an obvious contradiction. It shows that the scriptures can't possibly be right because every other place it talks about Jesus seated at the right hand of God. Well, some people get all worked up over that. I actually get blessed by that, and yes, I've included many of the scriptures. Um, both Old Testament prophecies and New Testament scriptures that all talk about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father. Psalm 110, it actually says, Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies my footstool. And over and over in the New Testament, it talks about how after Jesus ascended into heaven, he went back to the Father and sat down at his right hand. But Stephen sees Jesus standing. One explanation that I really like, and I can't prove this, there's no Bible verse to indicate this, but some believe, and I agree with them, that when a Christian gives his life as a martyr, there may be other instances, but I think maybe we can make this statement, when a Christian actually gives up his life for his faith in Christ, Jesus stands to his feet to welcome them into heaven. I don't know. Can't prove it big, biblically, but it sure sounds nice to me, and it sounds a lot like Jesus. I can just picture Jesus standing up to welcome Stephen. Welcome into heaven, my son. You're the first one since Jesus, since I laid down my life on the cross, you're the first one to enter into heaven this way. Maybe he only did it for Stephen, we don't know. But maybe, just maybe for every martyr, he does the same. Stand up, welcome into heaven. Well, Uh, This was not a testimony that the priests and the angry persecutors wanted to hear. They really weren't wanting to hear about visions of glory and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So, verse 57 again, they covered their ears. Their ears were already completely blocked, but now they're covering them so that they can't even hear the words coming from Stephen's mouth and couple that with yelling at the top of their voices. So they're spiritually deaf, they're covering their ears, and they're yelling so loud they can't possibly hear anything. And in one accord, they're united, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. They couldn't handle that anymore. Stephen's words had been sawing on their hearts like the stings of a hornet or a scorpion. They kept stinging and piercing their hearts and finally they just couldn't take the torment anymore and in their darkened minds and the the complete resistance to the Holy Spirit they just go wild yelling and screaming like madmen they rush at this man um he hasn't really had a proper trial this was a mock trial and really none of the charges that were brought against him were ever proven to be true so with really without any trial without any semblance of justice they just go crazy and they're rushing at him like madmen, stoning him to death. Then there's one little statement that is very significant. It says, meanwhile, verse 58, meanwhile the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is the Saul of Tarsus that will become Paul the Apostle. That's all we're told for now. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Well, a few important things we learn, which will be confirmed later in the book of Acts, Saul is indeed present for this event. He was there as an eyewitness <clears throat> to this execution, cruel execution of Stephen. He saw it all. He was certainly not only allowing it, but we will see he was approving of it. And this would begin a process that was getting Saul ready for his meeting with Jesus Christ. It's just a little sidebar that the Holy Spirit leaves for now. He just drops the name, Saul, almost like telling the reader, don't forget this name, you're going to hear it again soon. Saul will be a very important character in coming chapters, so just just remember his name. We're not going to say much more about him right now, except that he was standing guard over the clothes of Stephen's executioners. So they would have taken off their outer robes and garments so as not to get them stained with blood as they're executing this guy. And Paul, still known as Saul here, is the one that's guarding the clothes of these executioners. Now, let's fast forward. Now I'm jumping around quite a bit. Uh, We haven't even read anything yet about Saul's conversion, him becoming Paul the Apostle. Many years later, when Paul the Apostle would be giving his own personal testimony, we can learn what a profound effect this event had on his life. Watching Stephen his face like an angel, no anger, no bitterness, no unforgiveness, dying at the hands of these cruel madmen, one of whom was Saul, he's a part of their company, it had to have made a great impression on him, not only seeing Stephen's composure, but hearing his words. Father, Father, Forgive them. Forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them. In Acts 22.20, again, this is years later, Paul is giving his personal testimony. Listen to what he says. Acts 22.20 And when the blood of your martyr, Stephen, was shed, I stood there, giving my approval, and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. This had to have really pierced his heart after he came to Christ, realizing that he was party to the execution of the first church martyr. Paul was there. He was a part of the whole thing. It had to have really marked him and affected him deeply, and greatly. Now, back to Stephen. While they're stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Without any question, this crowd has gone berserko, They're sinning grievously, sinning, committing murder and all kinds of injustice against this innocent man, Stephen. But what's his prayer? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I'm pretty sure Saul heard those prayers. I'm pretty sure. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and Lord, do not hold this sin against them. You probably already noticed how similar this is to Jesus' death on the cross. Listen to the similarities in the prayers. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In Luke 23, 46, on the cross, Jesus had prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Same thing. Father, receive my spirit. They're not killing me. I'm laying down my life and I'm giving my spirit back to you. They weren't killing Stephen. Stephen was laying his his life down for Jesus Christ. Stephen prayed, Lord, Lord, Do not charge them with this sin. Well, on the cross, Luke 23, 34, Jesus had prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. We learn something very important here about Stephen. He had the very Spirit of Christ. It was visible it was audible, all of his persecutors, all of his attackers saw it and heard it, the very spirit of Christ manifesting through Stephen, his face looks like an angel, his voice full of grace, full of forgiveness, he's laying down his life, giving his spirit back to God, and praying that God would not hold their sin against them. What an amazing picture the Holy Spirit paints for us here through the pen of Luke and left for us now to read and study and ponder the account of the first martyr in the church. Let me read this whole portion again from another translation, from the Message Bible. Acts 7, verse 54 to 60, from the Message Bible. At that point, they, that's the Jewish attackers, at that point, they went wild, a rioting mob of catcalls and whistles and invective. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, hardly noticed. He only had eyes for God, whom he saw in all his glory with Jesus standing at his side. He said, Oh, I see heaven wide open and the Son of Man standing at God's side, yelling and hissing, the mob drowned him out. Now in full stampede, they dragged him out of the town and pelted him with rocks. The ringleaders took off their coats and asked a young man named Saul to watch them. As the rocks rained down, Stephen prayed, Master Jesus, take my life. Then he knelt down praying loud enough for everyone to hear, Master, don't blame them for this sin. His last words. Then he died. Saul was right there, congratulating the killers. Think again about the stark contrast between the behavior, the spirit, the total discomposure of these Jewish leaders, supposedly the representatives of God, the representatives of those who know the law and keep the law, the righteous elite. Look at their behavior. Like a mob, a rioting mob with catcalls and whistles and invectives, just hissing and gnashing their teeth like wild animals stampeding upon Stephen stoning him with anger and hatred compare that with Stephen he's not at all been out of shape he seems to have perfect peace he's not really even noticing what they're saying or doing his eyes are fixed on Jesus. Why? you talk about a living example, a living demonstration of what the book of Hebrews tells us to do. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. This is how to do it. Stephen, in the face of unbelievable suffering and attack, rejection and opposition, his eyes are fixed so much, he says, all I can see is the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Wow. What a testimony. And again, we have to ask ourselves if only God had spared Stephen's life think of how many more years of fruitful ministry he might have had preaching, teaching um, working many signs and wonders training others to follow in his footsteps perhaps even launching out on apostolic mission trips with with Paul or one of the other apostles. But again, God's ways are not like our ways. God does things that we can't understand, and He has His own eternal and wise purposes. This was Stephen's destiny. It was God's plan for his life, period. So be it. Amen. We're not sure how long of a period transpired between his being chosen as a deacon and the end of his life. Um, May not have been that long a period of time, but in bringing this whole part five to a conclusion, we do know that a considerable amount of time has transpired between Acts chapter 5 and where we are now ending. Could have been a number of years actually that the Jerusalem church was growing. Many more souls, including priests we saw, were being added to their number. They've had these waves of revival followed by waves of persecution. But they continued to preach, they continued to teach, and the church in Jerusalem began to grow. Now we've come to the end of Acts 7. Probably 10, possibly 15 years have passed since the day of Pentecost. And we're still only in phase 1 of Acts eight. After you receive the Holy Spirit, power will come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's phase 1. Then Judea and Samaria. We haven't gotten to that phase yet. That's coming in Acts 8 and 9. And then phase 3, you're going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. We won't even begin phase 3 until we get to Acts 10. So basically, we're still in the first phase of this Three phase Great Commission Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. They're still in Jerusalem. There's a certain carnal resistance to launch out outside of their comfort zone, outside of the environs of Jerusalem, to go to places where they didn't really like to go, Samaria. And they certainly didn't like going to Gentiles. But in part 6, we're going to see how God supernaturally launches them out from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And he's going to use the man we just read about, Saul of Tarsus, and he's going to use persecution to do it. They they will literally be driven out of Jerusalem at the hands of Saul and the other Jewish leaders who are still bent on persecuting and snuffing out this Christian movement. It'll reach a fever pitch in chapters 8 and 9 to the point that they're now forced to leave Jerusalem and start to move into some of these other areas. Recapping part 5, which covered Acts chapter 6 and 7, we saw that as the church grew, the apostles, always the apostles are the ones leading this movement, the way, they realized the need to implement some new measures as the church was growing, and they actually began what we would call the first deacons. The church congregation was charged with the responsibility of searching for seven men who met certain qualifications, had to have a good report, a good testimony, had to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And when the seven were brought to the apostles, they not only approved of them, but they laid their hands on them, which is a very significant move, often representing what we would call an ordination. This was the apostles' way of showing their agreement with God and God's agreement with them that these are the seven that have been chosen now They're being installed into this office, this position. So we had the ordaining of the first deacons. There would be many more deacons in days and weeks and months to come, but these were the first deacons. And of those seven deacons, two very prominent ones make up the next few chapters of Acts. Namely, Stephen would occupy Acts 6 and 7. And next time when we get into Acts 8, we will learn a lot more about another one of the deacons, Philip. Both Stephen and Philip went way beyond waiting on tables. That was their initial responsibility. But obviously, the Holy Spirit began to use them in ways way beyond those physical menial duties of a deacon. They were preaching, they were teaching, they were baptizing, they were casting out devils, they were doing mighty signs and wonders. And of course, with each new wave of revival and miraculous power, there came a new wave of opposition. And Each time, the opposition seems to escalate. It goes from jealousy to fury, from fury to murderous desires, to the final and actual uh, fulfillment of that in killing the first of many Christians. There would be many, many, many martyrs in this early church, and there continue to be thousands of martyrs around the world each year. Last year in 2016, it's hard even to estimate, uh, they say maybe as many as 10,000 documented martyrs, including young children who refuse to recant their faith in Jesus to save their necks who were beheaded, sawed in pieces, lit on fire by angry, angry persecutors. Not a whole lot has changed in 2,000 years. May God give us the boldness in these last days to carry on the legacy of these great men of God, like Stephen, who didn't back down, didn't mince words, wasn't afraid to speak what the Holy Spirit gave to him to say. And let me say this, the times in which we live, there is a strong anti-Christian element in our culture. I'm speaking about right here in America. Here in America, there are a growing number of people who absolutely hate Christians. They hate them with a passion. They violently hate them. And sooner or later, it will boil over in the same way that it did with Stephen. And we will see martyrs, Christian martyrs, shedding their blood on the soil of the U.S. of A. It will happen, my friends. And we can't live in this fairy tale land that, oh, we're in America. That would never happen to Christians here. Oh, really? If you listen to the way people in the culture are speaking, you see the hatred, the anger. They will spit on Christians. They will curse them out. They will shake their fists, gnash their teeth at them. It's just a matter of time before it escalates to this next level. So, we had the choosing of the seven. We have the execution of one of them. And next time, we'll trace the ministry and the life of another one of these deacons, Philip, who would eventually be recognized in the church as an evangelist. The evangelist Philip. And we're also going to start to hear a lot more about this man, whose name was dropped right at the end of Acts 7, a young man named Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He will be center stage in chapter 8, and he will be key in actually launching the church into phase 2 of the Acts 1-8 commission, which was to take the gospel into Judea and Samaria. Before we close, let me just read, jumping ahead, let me just read the first three verses in Acts 8 to sort of set the stage for our next study. And Saul was there. Remember, this is linking right to the stoning of Stephen. And Saul was there, not only guarding their clothes, Saul was there giving approval to his death. So he's all for it. He's in lock, stock, and barrel with the rest of these Jews. On that day, note those words, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, so they, they're they just, they're going wild now, and they're not content to stop with the stoning of Stephen, they're, they're just, they're unhinged and unleashed now, they launch a whole scale attack on the whole Jerusalem church, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and here's the key, All except the apostles were scattered, listen to this, throughout Judea and Samaria. How interesting. Just according to the script, God says, okay, we're moving into phase two now. We've been in Jerusalem long enough. We now need to take the gospel to Judea and Samaria. They didn't move into Judea and Samaria because an angel appeared to them and gave them a vision or a prophet stood up and spoke to them. God uses persecution to move them into phase two. They were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So, get ready for the next phase. A whole lot more persecution, a whole lot more opposition, but in the same token, revival is going to keep spreading, the gospel is going to keep spreading, We're now moving into phase two where the gospel is going to invade Judea and Samaria. Let's close in prayer for tonight and we'll pick it up next time with part six in this 12-part series from the book of Acts. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your word. Your word is truth. Every jot and tittle of your word will come to pass. Everything spoken, everything predicted will be fulfilled. And even many of the words Jesus spoke when He was here on earth about the way His followers would be treated, how they would be hated, rejected, scorned, persecuted, tried and even put to death. Now we're seeing the fulfillment of many of those prophecies, and we've come to a milestone in the book of Acts where the early church has witnessed its first martyr. Stephen, a man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, a good man, a man who was do- doing great good for his people, for the city of Jerusalem, And for the early church, but his life snuffed out by angry, wild madmen who would continue to launch their attacks against the church, the way, the followers of Jesus Christ. Lord, you've promised us that all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And God, Not that we look for it, but help us to be prepared when persecution comes our way and help us to respond to it in the same way Stephen did with grace, with mercy, with forgiveness, but also with the boldness of a lion, standing firm in his faith, not backing down, not compromising not mincing His words, but boldly standing for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, give us boldness in these last days. Give us boldness to speak Your Word, to be Your witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. And use us, O God, to win many, many souls to Jesus Christ in these final days of time. Lord, We commit ourselves into Your hands of love. Keep us by Your power. Keep us faithful to the very end. We'll give You thanks and praise. God, I thank You for each and every one who's with us tonight in this Bible study. Let Your Word bring strength, courage, and hope into each one of our hearts as we keep pressing on to the prize, the mark of the high calling, in Christ Jesus, which is to win Christ. Keep us faithful to the end when He comes in glory for each and every one of us. Keep our eyes fixed upon Him until that time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.